following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. Please turn to Mark chapter 14 on that note. Mark chapter 14 is page number 850. If you are using one of the Bibles there in the seat in front of you. We're going to be reading verses 12 to 31, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. So when you're there, please look at verse 12. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him, and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? And he said to them, It is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. And as they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it, and he said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away... I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. Let's pray. Father, we come to you again this morning and we give you our time in your word. We ask that as we look at it this morning, you will remind us of the fact that you are so much better than anything that came before. That you, your sacrifice for us, your death on our behalf is so far superior, of such greater worth and value that we should never, ever look back. And so I pray that that idea will be clear this morning. Help us to understand this passage about the institution of your supper. We, we all share a common problem, or at least the vast majority of us in this room do, and that is that we have been partaking of it for so long that we almost take it completely for granted now, and so we need to, to push out some of those cobwebs and see it with fresh eyes. I pray that you will allow us to do that today. May this time be honoring to you, Jesus, we ask in your name. Amen. So 
one of my favorite movies for some reason, because it's certainly not a great movie necessarily, uh, is the movie National Treasure. Uh, the first one, not the second one. The second one was just dumb, but the first one I like quite a bit. And I like it so much that it seems that whenever I'm like switching you know, through channels and I'm looking around, if I find it on television, I will pretty much without fail stop and watch it, even though I've seen it, I don't know, a dozen times, just because I enjoy the movie so much. It was just a fun movie. It's part uh, historical conspiracy, part action, part comedy. I thought it was very well written as far as, you know, that kind of movie goes. It was well acted. And, uh, and so I just enjoy it. That said, there is one part of that movie that bothers me. It's bothered me some, since the beginning, bothers me to this day. And it is this right here. It is these weird glasses that they find uh, in Independence Hall uh, as they're going around trying to find this treasure. As you can see, there are actually six total lenses on these glasses, and four of them are on hinges. So depending on how you're you know, lifting them up and moving them, you can get uh, different combinations of vision. And according to the story, these glasses give them the ability to see the treasured past, if you remember that line in the movie. In other words, in order to see the invisible treasure map on the back of the Declaration of Independence, you have to put these glasses on, and when you put these glasses on, you will now be able to see what nobody else could see. I'm okay with that idea. That doesn't really bother me because I can see, like, you know, in movie logic, I can see the logic of that sort of concept. But what bothers me is that they made them go through all of these combinations to see different things. For example, when they lift the glasses in one particular way, they see this message on the back, here at the wall. And so by seeing here at the wall, they figure out where they're supposed to go. It's at the corner of uh, Wall Street and Broadway or whatever it was. I don't know, in New York City, and there's a church there, Trinity Church. And so they figure this out. Yet later in the movie like significantly later, it seems like, when they look through them in a different combination of lenses, they see this message instead beneath Parkington Lane, which tells them to break into a guy's tomb and go in it. Um, and, and here's what bothers me about it. It's just not logical. It's just not even movie logical. Look, if you have gone through all the trouble to make an invisible map on the back of the Declaration of Independence, and if you have then in turn made a set of glasses that gives you the ability to see it, why make them go through all the work of having to do this in order to read the map? It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. Now, it'd be one thing if maybe all the lenses didn't come with the glasses, and so you found the glasses first, and then there was like another hour of movie where they go and find each colored lens to insert in. Okay, then that would make sense. But just to give it to them all at once, it's, it's just busy work. It's not, it's unnecessary. The only redeeming value that I can see in these glasses is that they serve as an excellent illustration for what we're going to look at this morning. Um, and I do mean it is now the only redeeming value in the glasses. As I told you last Sunday, we're going to spend time together this morning taking a deeper look at the institution of the Lord's Supper that you see here in verses 22 to 25. Now, last Sunday, we looked at everything else around that here in verses 12 to 31. Verses 12 to 31 constitute a very unique and interesting period of time that represents the last moments where Jesus will have to spend with and converse with his disciples before the cross. And I showed you this slide last Sunday just to kind of give you a framework for how we're looking at chapters 14 and 15. I'm dividing uh, these two chapters into five scenes or five scenarios, however you want to think about it. It doesn't really matter. Uh, and, and each of these will have some unique features. Right now, we're with Jesus here in the upper room. And if you know anything about the rest of the story of Jesus' death over the next chapter and a half here, 
uh, you'll see that there won't be any other time where he will really have to talk to, to his guys. Yeah, there'll be a comment made here and there, but when we're talking about extended conversation, extended teaching, uh, this, this is it. And so to me, that makes this time incredibly significant because when you know that death is approaching, either for yourself or for someone else that you're close to, and you know that this is the last opportunity you're going to have to talk to them, to interact with them, you make that time count. You make it meaningful. You, you, you don't waste words and you don't waste your time. Each of the four Gospels records various aspects of this night. I, I mentioned last week uh, that John records five whole chapters of dialogue from this one meal uh, there in chapters 13 to 17. Mark doesn't do that. He chooses, rather, to record four key moments from this particular evening that were apparently significant to him, and we looked at three of those four moments last Sunday. And the thing that stood out to me, and this is where we ended last week, the thing that stood out to me most was, was that in these key moments that we looked at last Sunday, you see Jesus knowing who he is about to die for. Because when we first looked at it, you're tempted to think that he knows what he's about to get into, he knows what is going to happen, but that's not really the point. He knows who he's about to die for, these guys that are, and the rest of us, who will be his disciples. In the first key moment, you see the disciples completely unprepared for Passover. I mean, it's the day of, right? I made a joke, typical men. It's the day of. They've got no plans in place. Hey, where do you want us to, to observe Passover together? And so Jesus has to come in and, and kind of save the day for them. Hey, do this, do that, follow this, and you'll get there, and voila, everything will be fine. They, they're unfaithful. They're unprepared. In the second moment, uh, you see that one of these 12 guys is not only unfaithful, he's also a traitor. He's going to betray Jesus and, and someone who's eating with him, which is supposed to be a sign of peace, a sign of, 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 of unity, of brotherhood between people, particularly in this culture. Well, this guy who is acting like he is at peace with him is really going to betray him. So now we've got a traitor in the midst. In the fourth moment, because we skipped the third, the one we're going to look at today, in the fourth moment, we see that not only is one of them a traitor, but the other 11, who are thankfully not, are now deniers, abandoners. They're going to leave Jesus in his moment of need. Oh, they say they won't do it, but we know that they will. It's not a, it's not a very pretty picture that Mark paints of the disciples here in, in this section. They're unfaithful, selfish, dishonest, treacherous, deniers, etc., etc., etc. And yet, as clear as all of that is about them, None of that is really the main point, because the main point is really to see how loving and gracious Jesus is in dying for these guys anyway. He knows who they are, he knows what they're going to do, how badly they're going to betray him, and yet he moves forward with the plan of salvation anyway, and in doing so, the grace of God towards us is what is truly on display. Now, with that review and foundation in place, let's come back now and consider this third key moment that we see here in Mark chapter 14, verses 22 to 25. And as I've already mentioned and you're already aware, what this moment is about <clears throat> is the institution of what we refer to as being the Lord's Supper, or otherwise known as communion. And my assumption is that most of us in here, probably, probably the vast, vast majority, if you're an exception to this, forgive me, 
But I think most of us have a pretty well-ingrained understanding of what this thing that we call communion or the Lord's Supper is. Now, whether or not your well-ingrained understanding is accurate or not is a whole other question. But for good or bad, you have come in here this morning probably with some kind of an understanding around this thing that you have picked up just from experience, participation in the past. I know I have that, and yet personally I can say to you that for a long time now I have wanted to, to come back to the, to the Scriptures and just study this thing in more depth. And so I was thankful to have that opportunity this week, and having done that, I think the best way for me to help walk you through this as well is for us to think about the Lord's Supper or the communion through these different lenses. Because, and this has been for me probably the biggest takeaway of my study, it's not just one thing. See, we, we, I think, sometimes maybe it's because we're Americans or maybe it's our modern mindset, I don't know, we like to make things just one thing, okay? This is this, that is that. The Lord's table, though, isn't just one thing. It's, it's multiple things all at once. They're, they're all there, but depending on which set of lenses you're looking through, certain things stand out better than others at different moments. And so I would like to suggest to us this morning that in order to properly understand this event, we need to look at it through five different lenses. Now, there's going to be overlap to some degree. I'll acknowledge that at the outset between some of these lenses. And yet, each of them is unique enough to be treated individually. We're going to look at two of the five lenses today. We'll look at the remaining three next week, so you'll have to come back next Sunday to hear the remainder of this. Let's look here now at the first lens. The first lens I'm referring to as the lens of Passover and Jewish meal customs. Sounds intriguing, doesn't it? The lens of Passover and Jewish meal customs. And I have to start with this one because this is the immediate context of our text this morning. You know, at the very beginning of this section, back in verse 12, uh, Mark set the stage for us by telling us that it was the first day of unleavened bread, right? It's the day that the, uh, they were going to sacrifice the Passover lamb. And as I mentioned to you last week, that means that it is most likely Thursday morning of the Passion Week. I'm just keeping you in line with where we're at. And the question the disciples asked Jesus there in verse 12 is, where will you have for us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? Now, I talked a little bit, at least, about the significance of Passover uh, back in December before we took our Christmas break from, from Mark. I, I gave us just a little bit of information about it, but I want to remind you of some of those things and then add a little more to it today as quickly as I can. Um, this is the main Jewish holiday uh, slash festival in the day of Jesus, okay? So if you're a Jew living in Jesus' day, this is like Christmas and Easter and Thanksgiving and July 4th all rolled into one. And I pick those four purposely. It's like Christmas in the sense that it's a, it's a broad national holiday, okay? Everybody would pretty much would be participating, except for, you know, the Gentiles don't participate. They're the only ones with stores open that day, and they all eat at the Chinese restaurants. But, but outside of that, all the Jews are observing a Passover, so it's very much like Christmas and, and how we, our culture, treats Christmas in that sense. However, it's kind of like Easter, too, because it has very strong religious overtones. It is a 
religious festival. It is a religious holiday. And I know Christmas is supposed to be in our culture, but let's face it, it really isn't anymore. However, Easter still retains at least a little bit of that. And, and this would be kind of similar to Passover for them. Uh, it's kind of like Thanksgiving and that a family meal is a big focus of the day. It's kind of how the day's going to end. And so all of the events that transpire earlier in the day on Passover are going to culminate now in a, in a family meal that evening. And at the same time, it's like July 4th. There's a, a national component to this because they considered Passover to be the birth of, of the nation of Israel. It's, it's the time when God delivered them from Egyptian bondage and brought them out as his own. So it's a really big deal. Passover is a really big deal. It's, it's commemorating God's miraculous deliverance of them from, from bondage to Egypt, and it is commemorating their birth as a nation, the official start of them being God's chosen people. And like any good holiday, it doesn't matter what culture you're in, like any good holiday, you're going to have certain components that are always going to play themselves out on, on those days. You know, for Thanksgiving, for example, in our household, it begins, the, uh, the day begins, get up, Jamie makes little uh, cinnamon roll turkeys. We started this when the kids were little, and they're so good, but there's a cinnamon roll, but they're in the shape of a turkey, and we eat the turkeys, and then I go play football with the guys, and then I come home, and I'm sore for a couple hours, and then we eat, then I go sit on the couch because I'm still sore for the rest of the night, and, you know, there's, just, there's, a, there's a pattern that unfolds, and, and they had this too. There were some preparatory things that you were supposed to do in your home or in whatever place you happen to be staying. Uh, of course, you had to have a lamb. Every family or group of people that are meeting together for Passover, they have to have a lamb uh, to take to the temple to be sacrificed. Around 3 p.m. on that day, the priest would sacrifice a lamb on behalf of the nation, on behalf of the people. And then once that was done, each representative of, of each family or group would bring their lamb to a priest. There's probably stations set up, I'm imagining, all around the temple so that their lambs could be sacrificed. And just think about that for a moment logistically. How long would that have taken? I don't know, but they start at 3 and you don't eat till after sunset. So you've got a little bit of time to get all this done. Um, after your lamb was sacrificed, the priest gave you the carcass back. You're supposed to take it home and roast it and, and make some other uh, foods to eat with it, unleavened bread, bitter herbs, things like that. And then after sunset, you're supposed to have a commemorative meal together as a family or as a group. Um, and so as you think about Jewish time reckoning, and this is important for later on, that's why I'm saying it now, this meal is the beginning of Friday for them. Right after sunset is when they count the beginning of the next day. It's Thursday night for our way of thinking, but in their way of thinking, this is the beginning of Friday. So Friday of Passover begins with this meal, commemorating all of these things, how God miraculously delivered them and made them his own, etc., etc. You know, that must have been a, um, an amazing event to have been a part of, the, the original Passover. So it's so significant that God commemorates it for all time, right? It's, he, he was sending the angel of death to kill all of the firstborn children in the land of Egypt. And the only way you could avoid this was by sacrificing a lamb and putting its blood on the doorpost of your house. If the angel saw it, he would pass over you. And so everything they did in that day leading up to that meal is reminding them of those things. But it, it's, it's more than just really reminding them it is designed by God to put each successive generation of Israelites in touch, not just with this act, but with the original event. It's as if they're there again. 
It's as if, though, you know, even though they may be living a thousand, two thousand years after the original event, it's as if they are going through it themselves. It's supposed to connect them not just to one another and not just to their history, but it is designed to connect them to God and and God Himself and His provision for them. He, he, He didn't just provide deliverance for their ancestors, in other words, He provided it for them, their recipients of that same deliverance that their ancestors were. And so they're more than just participants in this act. They are themselves recipients of God's goodness. It's this meal, okay, and that history and that understanding and all of those uh, ramifications and, and points of significance, it's this meal that Jesus and his disciples are eating here in verses 22 to 25, okay? So you got that? Now, let's flip to the other side of this lens. I said it's the lens of Passover and of Jewish meal customs. In any Jewish meal, in any Jewish meal, including the Passover meal, it's not unique to Passover, in any Jewish meal, at some point during the meal, the head of the family or the head of the group would would stand up or get up, take bread, lift it up to heaven, and pronounce a blessing. Now, because you have Christian ears and you're listening to that and you've got a culture and a history, I've got to make sure that you don't misunderstand this. When I'm using the word blessing here, I'm not referring to the prayer of thanksgiving that sometimes is said by Christians in Christian context. Dear God, thank you for this food and for grandma and for a million other things that I don't know why we're thanking you for right now. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've built a culture around this this act of of saying grace or saying a blessing over meal. It's right to, to show God gratitude I would maybe challenge us to think a little bit more as families and individuals what we're doing in that act and why we're doing it. That's for another day. That is not this. When I say to you that they would stand up and pronounce a blessing on the bread, I mean literally a a blessing. The the, the verbiage that they would use was was standardized Uh, in English. It would translate something like this, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. So every meal. You stand up, lift up the bread, and say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the world, who brings forth bread from the earth. And after the head of the household would say this blessing on the bread, all of the participants in the meal, everyone who's sitting around the table, everyone in the room, part of the family, the household, was supposed to say amen. Not the guy who said the blessing, the the listeners. It's their way of affirming their agreement with the blessing. So amen, show their agreement, and then the head of the household would would break the bread, keep a piece for himself, and pass it on. Each person breaking a piece, passing it on until everybody had some. And in this way, then, they're sort of distributing the blessing, God's blessing to them of provision of bread to all of the members of the household. In a similar way, the head of the household would take a cup of wine, would lift it up, and would pronounce a blessing on it as well. Of course, it would be a little different because it's not the the bread from the earth, it's fruit of the vine. But, but again, everyone was supposed to respond with the amen, and then they would all take a drink. They would all have their own cups. That would be normal Jewish custom at the time. They would all take a drink, and this is, this is what you did every meal. Okay, This is not unique to Passover. It would be done during the Passover meal, but it's not unique to Passover. It would just have been a normal, common part of Jewish custom. And so, okay, you with me? If I bored you to death with these little details. Now knowing what you know about Passover and about Jewish meal customs in general, 
I want you to make sure that as we're reading ahead here, you're looking at these things through that lens. Now hold all of that there while we look at this same event now through a second lens. Okay, hold that second lens now. The second lens we're going to look at this through is called the lens of covenant. The lens of covenant. As you can see here in Mark's recording of the story, Jesus follows the normal Jewish traditions, but then... He takes what he's doing or what he has done in a new and unexpected direction. I mean, in verse 22, Mark says that as they were eating, he took bread and he broke, he blessed it, he broke it, and he gave it to them. Now pause, because you now can read this through the lens of the Passover and Jewish meal customs, you recognize that that's normal. There's nothing up to that point that is out of the ordinary for any other meal they probably ever ate together. So up to this point, everything's fine. But now, know the unexpected turn in the story. After blessing it, breaking it, giving it to them, he now interprets this act in a way that was not normal. He says, take, this is my body. Hold that. In verse 23, he then moves on to the wine. He took a cup, and when he had given thanks, okay, that's the blessing. And again, pause, up to this point, this is normal, okay? Everything going just like it would have in any other meal. Uh, but then he gave his cup to them and they all drank of it, which is the first unusual component here because typically, as I said, each person would have their own cup. But Mark is very clear that Jesus takes his one cup and passes it for each of them to drink. Okay, so that's kind of weird in and of itself. But then, note, again, he interprets this act for them this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So this is my body. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Um, would it be fair to say that we are so used uh, to these kinds of words as Christian readers that there is no sense in which they bother us or stand out as unusual or much less as, as being offensive? We're just so, so used to them. But, but if somehow we could just wipe all of that away for a moment and, and read or listen to these words as, as Jewish listeners, as Jewish readers for the very first time, we would be shocked to say the very least. Shocked. First, uh, regardless of being Jewish or not, I think we all come pre-wired by God to understand that cannibalism is generally bad, okay? Just throwing that out there as a, a general concept. I mean, there's, I say that because there's no Old Testament law that specifically says, thou shalt not eat human flesh, because it wasn't necessary, okay? Every time cannibalism is seen in the Old Testament, it's clearly uh, seen as a reprehensible evil, almost like the worst of the worst, and, and as a sign of a great curse upon the people, the the nation, the individual who does it. Uh, second, in Jewish culture, the consumption of blood, any blood, not just human blood, any blood at all, was absolutely forbidden by God in the Old Testament. It's absolutely forbidden because the life is in the blood. And so to drink the blood of an animal or of any, anything was to drink the life of another, and this was wrong. If you understand those two concepts about cannibalism being bad and drinking blood being bad in their mind, Jesus' words here are shocking. They're shocking. What do you mean, eat my flesh and drink my blood? 
What are you, what are you talking about? Now, in fairness, uh, this isn't the first time that Jesus has said something like this. If I had time, I would love to walk us through John chapter 6. Because in John chapter 6, as he is preaching and talking to a group of Jews who had gathered to him, he proclaims himself to be the bread of life. Do you remember this, this proclamation of Jesus? I am the bread of life. And so as he's doing that, he eventually tells them, that in order to have life, they have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He says it, just that point blank to them. If you don't eat my flesh and drink my blood, you're not going to have life. And, and, and John tells us that his listeners are so bothered by this, so repulsed, so offended, that many of his disciples, not the 12, but a group, of crowd that had followed him, because he always had more than just the 12. He's got a posse, right? So he's got more than just 12. Many of them, though, they turn back and no longer walk with him. They're so offended by these words of eating flesh and drinking. What, you, ugh, what kind of person are you? It must have been so bad. The numbers of, of the people leaving must have been so amazing that Jesus tell, or excuse me, John tells us that Jesus turns to the 12 and says, do you want to leave also? And they say no. That, that's not directly connected, but it just gives you a sense of how the average Jewish person would, would read, hear, understand this concept. This is, this is repulsive to them. They're not going to be fans of this kind of language. So if this kind of language is so offensive to his readers, to his listeners, why is Jesus saying this? Well, I'll give you three answers, a positive one, a negative one, and then another positive one. First, in that John 6 passage I mentioned, I think Jesus is most likely purposely trying to offend <laughs> the crowds who are with him. Because unlike most preachers and churches today, Jesus is not about building crowds. He's about attracting disciples. And if they can't process what he's saying and the spiritual ramifications of that, it's probably better for them to go. Now, that's not exactly what I think he's doing here in this meal this evening but it gives you some understanding of how he operated in, in that other light. I think he has a different purpose tonight, which leads me then to the second answer I would give you. This purpose that he has in saying these things is not to say that you have to literally eat his flesh and drink his blood. It's not that, not literally. Uh, in other words, Jesus broke bread, not his arm, right? He didn't, like, here, that, I'm not trying to be gross, I'm just trying to point out the obvious. He breaks the bread and he pours the wine and he, he passes these out in a clearly symbolic way. And I point this out to you uh, because I know some of you are from a Catholic background and I know some of you interact with, with Catholics on a regular basis, friends, family, co-workers, whatever. And in Catholic theology, they teach you that when you eat the communion wafer, when you drink the cup that has been blessed by the priest, that a miraculous transformation occurs somewhere between your mouth and your stomach. And this range right here is the range of miracle. And somewhere right here, the, the, the bread you ate, the, the cup you drank, is going to literally, in reality, become the body and blood of Jesus. Um, which makes, of course, total sense, because the essence of true spirituality is clearly divine cannibalism, right? I mean, who doesn't want to eat God? Not to mention the added, but never talked about experience of being able to pee and poop out your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And if you're not picking up on my obvious sarcasm and disdain for this doctrine, I'll make it clear. I think it's stupid. It is the most asinine, unbiblical, and illogical doctrine, one of the most 
illogical doctrines that the Catholic Church teaches. This is not what Jesus meant. He is not literally saying, you are going to eat my flesh and drink my blood. So if he is not literally saying that, then what is going on here? Well, third answer, Jesus himself makes the larger point of what he's trying to do here extremely clear because he says it. This is a covenant ceremony. Oops, back up. This is a covenant ceremony. You know, as modern Americans, we don't think much in terms of the word covenant. It's just not a word. We're familiar with the word, but we don't use the word a lot. Um, And so to help us understand it, I'll remind you of a definition of covenant that I've given you in the past and will hopefully be familiar to some of you if you're new to Cornerstone, then this is a definition to remember. A covenant is a relational contract. A covenant is a relational contract. Now, I use those terms because we understand those terms. Everyone in this room knows what a contract is. We all have them, probably multiple of them, in different respects, in different uh, settings. You know, a contract is an agreement between two or more parties that outlines what everyone is supposed to do or not do and when it's supposed to be done, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So, for example, I have a contract with my cell phone provider. I've agreed to provide them money every month. In exchange, they've agreed to provide me with certain cell phone services. And, uh, you know, this is going to continue for a certain amount of time. If they stop providing services, I'm going to stop giving money. If I stop giving money, they're going to keep charging me money probably and stop giving me services all at the same time, you know. But this is a contract. It's how contracts work. Uh, But this contract that I have with my cell phone company, it, it isn't relational. There's no connection between me and them. They don't send me, like, birthday cards and call and check on me every now and then just to make sure I'm doing okay and I don't love them, et cetera. It's just a contract. Now, compare that to marriage for a moment. Because if if you think about it, marriage is, in many respects, a contractual arrangement. It it really is. There are contractual elements to marriage. So, you know, when Jamie and I got married, I agreed to do and be certain things for her. She agreed to do and be certain things for me. We agreed on a certain amount of time, you know, the rest of our lives. Uh, these These are all contractual elements. And yet there's clearly something different about the arrangement that I have with Jamie versus the arrangement I have with Verizon. Very clearly something is different. And those differences are centered around the fact that we have a relationship. And the fact that there is a relationship tied to those components deepens immeasurably the nature of those contractual promises that we made to one another. Those weren't just bullet points on a term sheet. These were These were lifelong, unbreakable promises that we made to one another. These were a commitment of our whole selves to one another. The the arrangement that I have with Jamie is not one like I have with anyone else. It's not just a contract. It is a covenant. And as you look through the Old Testament, you'll see that there are a number of covenants sprinkled all throughout the Old Testament between various individuals and between God and his own own people. Uh, The big one, The one that mattered the most, particularly to uh, the disciples and to the Jews of Jesus' day, was called the Mosaic Covenant. Uh, This was the covenant that God made with the people of Israel through Moses almost immediately after they came out of Egypt. They came out uh, after Passover. They go through the Red Sea. They go out into the wilderness and camp around Mount Sinai. God calls Moses up on the mountain, and there he enters into covenant with Israel. He promises to be their God. In exchange, they promise to be his people. 
And like any covenant, there's going to be stipulations and expectations that are all going to be laid out. The Ten Commandments, laws written on stone, uh, that's part of that covenant. The stipulations were the Old Testament law, all the commands, all the sacrifices, all the feasts and festivals, all the stuff you read about from Exodus to Deuteronomy pretty much. That's the covenant, the stipulations. And if Israel obeyed, they could expect, expect blessings. If they disobeyed, they could expect curses. And you don't have to have spent years in Sunday school to know that the rest of the Old Testament story after Deuteronomy is pretty much showing you how they did not live up to that covenant. Not even close. They violated it over and over and over and over and over again. And time and time and time and time again, God allows curses to come upon his people always with the goal of calling them back to covenant faithfulness to God, to, to use a marriage analogy that God himself uses of them in the Old Testament, Israel was like an unfaithful spouse. Some of you can understand that, that analogy, and others of us can't. It was as if God was the husband and Israel was the wife and that she was being unfaithful to him over and over and over again, despite all he did, despite everything he called her back to, she just wouldn't stop. Just as constantly as he called her back, they constantly walked away again. And so God made a promise to them that one day he would do away with this old covenant. Israel had been unfaithful to it anyway. He was going to do away with this old covenant that Israel had been so unfaithful to, and he would bring a new covenant. Jeremiah, the prophet, records the words of God describing this new covenant. It was read earlier. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband. Hear that marriage analogy? Though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, not on stone this time, on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Folks, this new covenant that God is promising to Israel here in, in the book of Jeremiah is the very covenant that Jesus is inaugurating at this evening's meal. You can draw a circle around Mark 14 and a line all the way back to Jeremiah 31. This is that. And you see, when two parties would enter into covenant, certain things had to be done. A sacrifice had to be made. This is always true of every covenant in the Old Testament. A lamb or bull had to be slaughtered. Its body had to be broken. And by its blood, which would be poured out and then sprinkled on the people who were, were partaking in the covenant. It was by the, the blood that the covenant itself was ratified. And then once the covenant was ratified, a sign would be given, something to, to signify and remind those who were in the, the covenant of their covenant commitments. And so think about the covenant that God made with Noah about the earth, never flooding it again. What sign did he give him? Rainbow. When Moses went up on the mountain and, and God entered into covenant with Israel, he gave them the, the sign of circumcision, not as fun as a rainbow. And then, you know, even in our own understanding of, of covenants, even in marriage, when, when you get married to your, your, your husband, your wife, you're given a sign as well. It's a ring. 
something to remind you, your spouse, and everyone who sees it that you've entered into covenant. So, so these, these concepts are always there. And, and in this new covenant, the sacrifice isn't going to be a lamb. It's going to be Jesus himself, his body broken and his blood shed. And the sign given is going to remind those who are part of this covenant of some great truths that are theirs because of the sacrifice of Jesus. I'll give you just four real quick because they were the easy ones that jumped out. Number one, the new covenant relationship we have with God is, is by and through Jesus alone. That's it. No more lambs. Old system's over. Our hope is in Jesus now. Number two, that they ate from one loaf, Jesus' loaf, and drank from one cup, Jesus' cup, reminds them and us of their oneness, both not just with one another, excuse me, but with Jesus himself. They were all partaking as one. Number three, that he chose to do this at the Passover meal time, like he could have done it any time of year, that he chooses to do it now in so many ways shows us the larger truths of, of God's plan for us. You know, the Passover was designed to remind the Jews of God's deliverance of, of them from Egypt. We're now reminded when we partake of, of the Lord's Supper of our deliverance from sin. The, the Passover was designed to remind the Jews of, of their birth as God's chosen nation. Now when we partake of the Lord's table, we're reminded of, of our birth as God's people. The Passover was supposed to connect Jews from every generation back to the original event and show them that no matter when they were born, they were all participants in that. They were, they were all being delivered in that. When we partake of the Lord's table, we're reminded that no matter when we're born, we're tied back into the cross and to his death for us. And that Jesus chose to do this, not, not in some element of Passover itself, but at, with a regular component of the meal, shows us that we're not supposed to remember this just once a year. It was every day. Every day the disciples would have sat down and broken bread. Every day. And every day they would be reminded that they are daily participants, constant, continued participants in the body of blood of Jesus, one with him, in a new and right relationship with God because of him. Folks, this is covenant language that we're reading here. Jesus is doing away with the old covenant. He is starting a new covenant, and we have to see it through this lens if we are going to understand it correctly. Now, we have to stop here for today. We're going to look at the next three lenses uh, next Sunday. And so while I'll save the bulk of my application and thoughts about what this means for us until uh, next week, I want to end by making just one main observation today. I, no one has told me to my memory, and I have a bad memory, so that works to my advantage sometimes. To my memory, no one has ever told me here at Cornerstone that they like to do this, but I, I have seen a trend growing over the last few years that is weird. There are a lot of Christians and seemingly a lot of churches who, for some reason, during the Passion Week, week before Easter, are trying to get together on Thursday evenings to do a Passover meal together. It's called a cedar, okay? They want to have a cedar together. And some people go all out, you know, and they're roasting lambs, and they've got bitter herbs and unleavened bread, and they do the whole nine yards. They want to make it as authentic as possible so that, so that they can experience that. And I'm sure their intentions in that are good. They're probably just trying to connect in a very tangible way uh, with the events of that week. And, and while I'm not really trying to critique those people or those churches per se, um, I have to admit that there is a real aspect in which I think what they are doing is undermining what Jesus himself is doing here in this meal. In Matthew 5, Jesus told the Jews who had gathered to hear him preach that uh, day, 
that he had not come to destroy the law, but to what? Fulfill it, okay? So Jesus has come, he says, to fulfill the law. Now, Israel had never been able to do this, right? They had never fulfilled the law. They had violated it in every way, time and time again. Jesus, though, comes as the perfect Israelite, born under the law, and he perfectly fulfills the law, all of its righteous requirements perfectly. And as such, the rest of the New Testament is going to argue this point that Jesus, in, excuse me, that the law then finds its completion, its fulfillment in Jesus. And so whereas, you know, the commandments of the law could never make us righteous before God, mainly because we couldn't keep them, Jesus could, and he is perfectly righteous before God, and so we receive our righteousness not through the law, but through him. Or another example, whereas the sacrifices that were prescribed by the law could never fully and finally remove sin, atone for sin, the sacrifice of Jesus could fully and finally atone for sin forever, once and for all. And whereas the Passover event and its annual commemoration could never truly provide deliverance uh, from our greatest enemy and our most brutal captor, the deliverance that Jesus provided through his death on the cross delivers us not just from slavery to sin, but from Satan and death itself as well. And so in, in inaugurating what we call the Lord's table, communion, Jesus is doing away with the old, and he is replacing it with the new, with, with something far, far better. And my question is, why would we ever want to go back? You know, one of my favorite commentators on Mark had this helpful little chart. I don't know how well you can read it up here, but I mean, just consider what he's comparing here. He says, you know, in the Passover meal is in the old age of the law. The Lord's Supper is, is in the new age of the kingdom. Passover was the great festival meal celebrating the birth of God's people. The Lord's Supper is the new celebratory meal celebrating the birth of God's people. Uh, Passover, participants associated themselves with deliverance from Egypt and the old covenant. In the Lord's Supper, we associate ourselves with redemption from sin and this new covenant. Passover is looking back to the Exodus and, and forward, in a sense, to the day when God would bring an ultimate salvation. Guess what? That salvation came. And so the Lord's Supper looks back to the cross and then looks forward to the full and final realization of God's kingdom. I put this up here just so you can see there's a lot of similarities. There's a lot of overlap of ideas, but the new is far, far, far better than the old. There's no need to go back. And while that may not be one of the main purposes of what Mark has done in recording this for us like he has, uh, to remind us that there's no need to go back, it is certainly worth reminding ourselves of, both today and, and on a daily basis, because our hearts are prone to do this, are they not? To, to go back and rebuild what, what we had before, whether it's something silly like you know, having a cedar meal, it's not like a sin to do it, I just think it's misguided. Or something far more critical, like trying to go back and rebuild our own righteousness before God apart from Jesus. We struggle with that on a daily basis. Our hearts are always prone to go back. And so in this act of communion, we are reminded again and again and again and again to never turn back. Because our hope is, in our, is not in ourselves. It is in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus, which was poured out for many, including us. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for just letting us see what we've seen so far today. This is a, a, a multi-layered moment in the life of the church and in the history of salvation, and we want to understand it. We want to be careful. We want to 
to, to plummet the depths. There's no need to rush through it because it is so rich. And so I pray that as we work through this, both today and now next Sunday, that you will open our eyes to see from all these different facets the beauty of what you are doing. You are doing away with the old, that old system with its laws and its commandments that we can never meet, with the sacrifices that never satisfied, with the festivals and feasts that reminded us of, of, of past deliverance, but not full and complete deliverance. All of that is being replaced with something far better, and that's you. You are the fulfillment of all of those things. And so as we think about this act of, of the Lord's table, continue to give us a clearer and better understanding of what it truly is so that as we move forward together as, as believers and as a church, we will begin to appreciate it for all that it is meant to be appreciated for. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.